0: Welcome to Talkscript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of Talkscript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if Talkscript is your type of podcast.
1: Welcome to the Talkscript podcast. I'm Anthony, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sam Menza. Hello. And Tori Rice. Hello. Today, we are talking with Renee Rubaclava, from Esri about ArcGIS and their TypeScript migration. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Renee. Hey, thanks, I'm glad to be on. All right, before we uh, dig into that, Sam, would you like to give our uh, TypeScript update?
0: Thanks, Anthony. So as for our community updates, we have a TypeScript 4.2 release that was released on February 23rd, which was a couple days ago. The version includes smarter type alias preservation the ability to mark destructured variables as explicitly unused, which I will personally find pretty useful. Leading and middle rest elements in tuple types. So that's an improvement from only being able to use a rest element at the end. And lastly, what I found interesting was a abstract class construct signature. So this will be a marker that makes a class so that you can only use it when you are extending it from an, for another class it also makes it so that certain properties need to be defined on that class that you are uh, using to extend in order to create a valid instance. So yeah, a lot of new and exciting things coming up for uh, that release. I'm excited to personally test it out. In addition to that, our podcast here, uh, TalkScript is now available on Spotify. So definitely give that a listen. If you are a Spotify user,
2: I think the big news there is that we got that Rogan money. So (laughs) so now that we're we're rolling in that Rogan money, we're on Spotify, you know, it's good.
1: Yeah. Spotify doling out the cash. All right. Well, thanks for that update, Sam. All right. So, Renee, before we dive into ArcGIS, we know that you are a big Dojo fan. You have your learn-dojo.com website, which we are big fans of at SiteBen as contributors to Dojo. So as kind of our warm-up question, we wanted to ask you... What was your favorite feature of Dojo Toolkit? And then what is your favorite feature of the latest version of Dojo?
3: Ooh, that's a good one. I think I was a huge fan of the PubSub in yeah, the Dojo Toolkit because you got to do a lot of really cool things with it that uh, you wouldn't normally use in applications and stuff, but it proved to be incredibly useful for doing some like, really cool communication across your app and everything. I really dug that. For Modern Dojo, I think I'm really digging middleware stuff, especially custom middleware. There's all kinds of really cool things you can do in there. I dive into that quite a bit.
1: Yeah, we uh, love seeing your content. We'll definitely put some links to both the Learn Dojo site and also you have some great YouTube content as well. So love seeing that. Let's dig into your work at Esri. So what do you do at Esri and what's the ArcGIS platform?
3: So I'm a software engineer at Esri. I work on the JavaScript API team, which pretty much is used throughout the organization for all of our online development. So the ArcGIS platform itself is like a, it's a SaaS product. And we have this online hosting product that people can publish their own data to. They can search for data, find it. We have a way that you can go in there and put all the data together, create your own maps and then share them. Uh, you can share them publicly or you can share them with in your own organizations. So the JavaScript API is key to that because it really drives that entire platform. If something doesn't work there, we're we'll definitely, uh, hear about it, especially every new release. We kind of push stuff out and then right away we can find quick little things that we're able to fix quickly. So like I said, it's pretty big in terms of its usage, not just, the, um, online platform itself for, like I said, hosting all the day and everything like that, but also for a lot of our apps. We have a lot of applications people can use, everything from dashboard applications that's built with the API, along with uh, we have this product called Story Maps, which is really nice, kind of a way to build combined uh, stories, so written stories like WordPress type stuff with maps and images and videos. And there's other products for doing custom development, like we have an experience builder, which you can kind of, piece together an application and build your own uh, applications and websites and stuff. And there's a lot of other products that we have all built at the core using the JavaScript API, and they kind of wrap other things on top of it. So it's a it's a big product. It's a lot of fun to work with. I really enjoy it. I've been there probably over almost six years now, I think. So uh, it's been been quite a task.
1: Yeah, I know just checking out some of the stuff online, some of the demonstrations are just really impressive I think that combination of data and mapping is is a really cool format. Are there any like examples that you guys like to point to, or or things of of
3: what you can do with the product? I think a lot of recently, a lot of the examples have been things that have done with a COVID, for example. We've had a lot of usage of our stuff to build out these applications, kind of track uh, cases, and just kind of do analysis with it. And one of the big things that we've uh, worked on the API, especially a lot recently, is the ability to not just display a lot of data, because uh, we're coming up on a point that we could probably display like 2 million points on the screen, which that's fine. You can display a lot of data there, but what's it really telling you? So we're really pushing in terms of how can I visualize this data? Whether it's a different type of uh, renders that you do to say, maybe uh, show a... a high cases versus low cases and these different way that you color everything versus even just like clustering. So now we can cluster these data to kind of show density of areas. We have all these different, we call them renderers, which are these uh, cartographic way to display data on map. And we really have been pushing that a lot recently to how can we enhance these visualizations with those kind of apps. So it gets used a lot. Every time there's some sort of, um, a disaster emergency you'll typically see our stuff being used to kind of map that out and it's used by a lot of agencies to build those kind of things so those are always really interesting to see and support
2: i thought it was really interesting when the covid thing started happening i remember one of the first dashboards that i pulled up i think was one that was built with with esri and while i know of the legacy dojo history it kind of slipped my mind and then i'm looking at this dashboard and it seems super familiar and having worked on digit myself uh that you know they designed for components and i was like god a tab looks familiar or this and then all of a sudden i look at the source i'm like oh right okay okay because my mind was at the time thinking we're all gonna die and then it's like cool i'm using this tool that uh you know i had something some hand in some of these parts to show me exactly how i'm gonna die so that was a plus that was positive it's like a <laughs> it silver lining in a pandemic Yeah, Dojo was pretty key with the API when it first started, I
3: mean, way before I got there, I think like 2008, 2009, it was key to getting the ball rolling in that case.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that data visualization becomes really important when things like COVID happen because, I mean, I've worked with data visualization before and I feel like you need to have a really, you know, you need to have a story with what you're telling or else just the data just kind of falls flat and it's like, what are you actually, why are you displaying this data? So I think a lot of people honestly kind of forget about what they're trying to say with the data. So thanks for sharing that.
3: Even recently, we ha- we also have 3D in our API, 3D capabilities. So a while ago, we added support for uh, like Mars, for example. So now that we've got Mars support, we're able to show data from the rovers and some imagery
2: and stuff for mars and where things
3: are happening so it's a lot of really cool stuff there that's it's really nice
2: is it really hard given that the earth is flat to keep up the charade working at a mapping company is that something that's difficult for you guys or are you not allowed to talk about that on the podcast you know i, th- I don't think i'm allowed to talk about that one but... we'll talk later
0: we'll talk after this so what technologies is your team using
2: We've been pushing
3: the limits on a lot of stuff for a while. So we use WebGL extensively. All of our drawing capabilities used to be SVG based. And at one point we'd hit hit a limit with that. Well, we hit the limit a while ago. So we knew we had to move to WebGL. So we've got a strong team that does WebGL. I don't know WebGL. I've tried and I can't even debug it. So I don't know what they do but they're the guys really pushing the performance of the API and you know, being able to display all this data and do all this really cool stuff with it. So we use WebGL extensively. We actually use a WebAssembly, and we've been using it for quite a while. What we did, so one of the things we use WebAssembly for is if you think about the earth, and you'll typically see the example of all oh, you need, if you peel an orange, think of the earth is an orange, and you peel it and you have to lay it out flat, How many different ways can you do that, right? So there's a lot of math involved with that. And we have a native projection engine that does that. It's written in like C or C++. So we actually converted that to WebAssembly. We use that in our Web API to do all that work now. So that was pretty uh, key for us. And we were really happy with that. And we're looking at other ways we could possibly use WebAssembly to do some cool stuff. We also uh, pretty much wrote our own custom worker framework because we use web workers a lot in the API to, uh, once we download the data, to parse it and push that back into the WebGL pipeline everything. And in order to really do it efficiently, there wasn't really anything out there for web workers that wouldn't let us do it the way we want to. So we pretty much wrote an entire uh, async-based worker framework that we use under the hood. Our users could actually do stuff with it if they wanted to. We just, we haven't had a lot of use cases of people doing custom worker stuff just yet, but we do have it available. We have some documentation on it and everything. It's really neat.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, like what what projects have you used with that?
3: The way we request our data, we do it in chunks to bring in uh, data from the online. So we're down, we may have to download 20 megabytes worth of data, but we're gonna get maybe a megabyte at a time. And all of that goes into the worker pipeline to get processed and parsed and converted into something that we could use in the application. And we basically just stream it right in. And it makes for a really great performance, because if we didn't, then everything has to get processed on the browser. It's going to hold up any interaction users are going to have. Uh, you get stuttering maps and stuff like that. So that really is huge for us to be able to do that kind of work.
0: Yeah, seriously, that sound, sounds great. I wanted to migrate a bit over to talking about TypeScript migration. I heard that you recently transitioned to TypeScript, is that right?
3: Oh, yeah, and it was more of a like five or six year project uh, for us to do that. We started with TypeScript 1.6, and I think Teams started maybe a year or two before I got there, when we first started with this newer version of our API. The reason we did that is that we wanted to deliver the API in other module formats other than AMD. We still have an AMD release today, but we also uh, wanted to take advantage of some of the more modern JavaScript features. So we could have gone the whole Babel route and convert everything over at that point, but TypeScript just gave us so much. And there were some pain points early on doing it, but it was fine and it worked really great. A lot of our team, when that came over from the, our Flex API. So we had a, a Flex API back in the day. And once Flash died, an early death, that team moved over to JavaScript API. So they were really familiar with using types and everything and jumped on board. And we just recently completed that migration uh, last year with TypeScript 3.8. I believe we currently have about 420,000 lines of TypeScript code for our API. So that was a, a pretty big task. And it required a lot of people on the team and just doing a lot of different, chipping away at it over time because we, we couldn't really dedicate just like a month to do it. Everybody just migrated everything to TypeScript because we still have to release. We still have features to build, new things to do. So it was a, quite a lot of work and the team's really proud of everything that we did to get there, which was awesome.
1: Yeah, that's really impressive at that scale. So with that many lines of code, what kind of approach did you guys take to? doing a piece by piece migration?
3: Well, we have like a whole build system in place where basically it lets us, we migrate a few types files over to TypeScript alongside JavaScript. We still use the Dojo build tools to build the AMD build because it's, I would argue it's probably still one of the better build tools today uh, up against everything else. It was just all in piecemeal, right? I mean, uh, one piece at a time. If we got something checked in, it was great. That was the thing too. We've got probably 18,000 tests all altogether between our functional unit screenshot integration. So all those tests have to pass every time someone migrates something over to TypeScript, make sure everything passed as well. So that was key there too.
0: What were some challenges that your team encountered when you were going through this?
3: I think probably just um, some of the biggest challenges were getting away from things like uh, loader plugins. We we use loader plugins a lot for AMD stuff, and that wasn't really supported in terms of working with TypeScript. Things like the export defaults, we couldn't really, at the time, couldn't really do it because we have users using our API as AMD, and it would just change the way they kind of write their code, so we didn't want to really mess them up at that point. Today though, we've gotten past a lot of that by releasing an ESM version of our API. We pretty much skipped everything else and went directly from AMD to ESM for our release, which has been great. It's been an awesome way to, uh, to work with everything.
0: How has that impacted your users? Did they have to migrate over their APIs as well or?
3: Some of them decided to do that, yes. But the only reason they don't have to is because we still release the AMD build of our API. And we have re- an ESM release now that's, we call it beta. And that's only because some of the pain points of moving to an ESM release have some challenges in terms of how build tools do things. And we've removed all polyfills from our API. So we don't, everything's all native promises and stuff like that. Uh, we don't have any of that anymore. So we were able to lean on some of those polyfills to make sure everything worked across the board. But uh, now we don't. So we just have to kind of worry about what browsers do and other frameworks might do. Uh, The biggest deal for us though probably was that we no longer have to support IE11. And that was key uh, during the transition was the fact that we had a lot of customers using IE11 and it was just straight up requirement. We had to support it. And we had some diehards there for a while.
0: I understand this pain. I feel like every web developer has understood (laughs) this pain.
3: We were pretty happy when we uh, were able to drop that support. And it, it shrank down the size of our API, too, the release build.
0: Nice, nice, yeah. I think we're going to get into AMD versus ES6 modules a bit later, but you know, focusing more on TypeScript, what best practices have you found working with TypeScript through this migration?
3: That was a bit of a tough one. We, uh, I think what TypeScript, or way that we do it, is that it really forces us to think about how our types are going to be used throughout our entire API. So if someone's working on a new feature, we have rules in place. We're not allowed to use any at all. Uh, we can't use any. We're allowed to use unknown if it really is unknown. But we have strict rules in place that won't let us any anything. So we definitely have to think about how the interfaces and types that we provide in a new feature are going to be used by other parts of the API because a new developer can come in. And the way that we do things, we have like our core API stuff, we have widgets built around things. So a widget developer has to come in and they're building UI. And if our types aren't sufficient for what they need, we don't want to have to do too much changing of that after the fact. And the way we can control the public APIs is that we don't generate our typings from the TypeScript. We actually generate them from our JS doc and it lets us get a little bit more fine grained control what those typings are. I mean, the only drawback there is every now and then uh, there might be an error in the doc and we have to update it, but we usually catch all that stuff during development and not at release time. That's always been, I guess that's probably one of our best practices there is the fact that we do that now. We have a lot of custom script to handle that too. Maybe today there is something out there that will do that for you, but at the time we started, there wasn't anything to create typings from doc that way.
1: I'm curious, did you have those doc before you started your TypeScript migration?
3: A lot of them, yes. Uh, When we first started with the API, we brought over a lot of things from the previous version of the API. So we were able to bring in a lot of that doc as well. And that kind of helped us develop our types too. And that is great for refactoring too, because if I go in there and I need to change a signature for something, I'm very aware that I need to update the documentation for it. So if I am updating doc and it doesn't look quite right, for me as a user, if I'm thinking from a user standpoint, I look at that documentation and go, well, that seems kind of weird. I know there's something wrong with my types. <laughs> so I need to go back and kind of adjust what I'm doing in that case. The refactoring is, is amazing too, because you have a, such a large library the way that we do. And if someone needs to refactor some core piece somewhere, it will just propagate throughout the entire API. The only downside with that is like I use VS Code to work with our API And I have to sit there and wait maybe five minutes as VS Code will go through and do all those automatic updates for me in a refactor. So that's like the only downside to that. But it's fine. If I just sit there and wait, VS Code does most of the work for me in that. That's uh, five minutes of waiting for your IDE to work versus (laughs) an hour of yourself. (laughs) Exactly. A find, replace, and everything else.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So what does your API look prior to migrating? How has the 6 modules changed your API? So before
3: migrating... Or the way our API is set up is that, if you look at our examples too, we still use AMD and stuff for the samples because we have, an AM, we have the AMD build and everything. So if users wanted to, previous to this, they want to use something like Webpack or Rollup or something. They wanted to write their code in the SM and they compile our stuff. They had to do some sort of trickery where either they call our API as an external and then they create an AMD module that our API loader can load. Or we had a Webpack plugin too. That, so we had a Webpack plugin that wrapped the Dojo Webpack plugin that would take uh, your code, it would give it to the Dojo Webpack plugin that would then spin into the Webpack build pipeline. And you end up with an application that ran fairly as you would expect a Webpack kind of build to work. It wasn't perfect, but it worked pretty good for the time that we used it. Now that we're with um, Use ESM, We're hitting some other pain points, but it's much cleaner for developers to just get started right away in doing it because it'll work if you use ESM from the browser natively. So if you just point to like a CDN for our API and hit it, everything just works great. You could use import maps to get some of the same functionality you could with like uh, AMD stuff, which I think is kind of a, where AMD just kind of shined in that case. And I mean, you see a lot of stuff that AMD did that uh, we're still not quite there, I think, with even uh, regular imports today. But it's still uh, really cool. And I think the fact that users can uh, start using it directly with uh, not just things like Webpack and Rollup, but even some of the newer build tools like Snowpack or Vite, which I've been pronouncing wrong forever. I've been calling it Vite. And my my friend pointed out recently to me, it's not Vite, it's Vite. It's French. So I was uh, pretty embarrassed about that.
2: But it just it just works, yeah, but this is America, and the web is America, and everyone knows that.
3: <laughs> that was my argument, but yeah <laughs> one of the other things that we deal with with the API is that when we do the AMD build and we we use dojo build tools, we're able to basically define what the build layers look like, so we we take a pretty good guess at what modules users are gonna use for an everyday applications. So we can create these really optimized build layers and everything and they go through the closure compiler and it's, it's all really nice and cool and it performs great. But now we're beholden to whatever these build, other build tools are gonna to do, to do chunks, right? And maybe those uh, chunks aren't necessarily always optimized for what the user wants. And then you can always shoot yourself in the foot with build tools too and you end up with like a single five megabyte build of your API because you try to optimize your chunks in some way and you've got some weird stuff going on. So you've got this giant app single file thing going. We're really excited with ESM and uh, the road ahead with that. We had some comments about like, well, it'd be nice if you had a common JS output as well, but our API and NPM is already 40 megabytes when you install it. So we didn't want to double that by adding any other options to it. So we decided to stick with pure ESM and I've seen recently too that a lot of other library authors are moving that route as too. So I don't feel too bad about our decision to stick to our guns with it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, been interesting to see the ESM rollout, and there's so many advantages that come from having a standardized platform. But like you said, like there are some things like import maps that are just now kind of being fleshed out that have been around in AMD for a while and. So it's, it's interesting seeing the tooling all coming together. And there's some great advantages to that. But there's also a few wrinkles to work out, for sure. I'm curious, as you've kind of worked on this ESM format, where have you kind of noticed some of the differences between AMD and ESM in terms of how you make sure that what you output is,
3: is consistent between those two formats? So I think one of the things that's kind of uh, forced us to do in the API is just be a bit more aware of how we build out the API in general. So we rely on classes a lot in the API to do a lot of different things, but you can't tree shake a class, right? So we're much more aware now of like maybe certain things don't need to be classes. They can just be functions that we uh, export pieces out as needed that would be tree shaken for users, So we do that a lot more now. We don't necessarily need to default export everything. Uh, We just have multiple exports. And we're trying to add more. So if we have a certain folder, for example, that has maybe 20 uh, modules inside it, now we're trying to add like an index full uh, in there that they can just kind of uh, import directly from there instead into the folder to do stuff, which is kind of nice. Uh, and we also are finding that we're having to teach our developers now how to do a lot of different things. So we, new developers coming in might be more familiar with using ESM and stuff like that, but a lot of our developers who have been working with our stuff for a long time aren't necessarily. So we definitely work with them to kind of move them over to this new way of like building apps and writing their code and taking advantage of all the really cool things. I push TypeScript a lot when I put my samples out and I always get comments back, well, I don't want to really write typescript I, Do you have something in regular javascript I'm like okay well give me give me a few minutes. <laughs> I'll give you something, yeah, just run
1: your uh your code through the uh typescript playground compilers <laughs> to get a quick uh typescript version
3: and that, what's really fun too is the fact that so if I just write my code in typescript or e s m uh, necessarily, then a lot of these build tools now are just Consuming ESM directly. So if I'm in development mode, it's super fast. It's ridiculous how quick it is sometimes to just get a dev mode up and running. You know, then the builds are necessarily easy too, because I can just do my build as an ESM too. I don't have to worry about going down to ES5 or something like that. It's not, I don't. Uh, I'm sure some people do, but I typically don't. So that's pretty nice.
0: Yeah, I feel like the web, honestly, like web development is just getting easier as it goes on.
2: Exactly.
1: I think there's some people and who harder. disagree.
2: It's doing <laughs> <Yeah>. both. <laughs> it's getting it's getting both easier and harder, right? Like when I started back in well before times, they you would just write some stuff and you just refresh your your local file and everything was just work. And now you're running things through, well, I mean, in old Dojo, we were doing this and people were complaining then, right? Of, oh my gosh, you have build tools. And, you know, the great thing about jQuery is I just put in this tag, you know, I just put in the jQuery tag and then everything, you know, I just reload my page, everything just works, but you have to go through a build tool with this. And now it's kind of funny to see how, you know, it's just moving more and like we've moved almost entirely to, yeah, you're going to have build tools and that's just the way it is. <laughs> But yes, I have seen a lot of people think, I mean, comparatively to how it was when you had you know 16 different webpack compatibility plugins working with each other, this is definitely simpler. <laughs> what, what you're doing now sounds a lot easier. I would say it used to be a time too when uh, your app was a
3: series of like individual JavaScript files and you had like a bash script just kind of combine them together and wrap them in an iffy and stuff, right? I mean, that was like your build step if you ever had one.
1: Yeah, it's... An interesting mix of the applications themselves getting more complex and doing more things to where then we have to have some optimizations to kind of manage large applications split across multiple chunks or trying to do like very complex visualizations to where we need WebGL or something like that. Like as we push those bounds, we kind of force ourselves into finding these optimizations, but then so it's like like the simple case can sometimes seem more complex, but at the same time, we're enabling a greater amount of possibilities for the future and as our applications grow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like I feel like the learning curve to e- even being a developer has just been, been getting easier over time. I remember when I first started off, I was, I don't know. I feel like it was a lot harder to get an app up and running when I was first starting out uh, coding. And now I feel like you can just like run a command and it's just up.
1: Well, even taking something like an iffy, like to someone who has used them before, they make sense and they kind of, you can kind of conceptualize like, all right, we're 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 encapsulating this chunk of code. But in terms of the actual syntax and, and what it is, like it's not as declarative why you're declaring a function and invoking it. Like that seems like something that you shouldn't need if you're just coming to the language. So those things, which there's a certain conceptual simplicity to it because you're reusing the function syntax. But at the same time, it's for someone who's just coming to it. That might be something that trips up. So it's it's like depending on which side of the coin you're on changes how you view what's simple and what's easy. So it's it's interesting kind of like hearing people talk about kind of the same things and having
2: completely different opinions about them. It's funny how that plays out.
0: Yeah, totally.
2: Yeah, but they're all wrong and I'm right, so that's the weird <laughs> part.
0: <laughs> it's funny how that works,
1: Renee. I noticed in one of your one of your demos, you were showing how to use the new ES modules in the React starter, and you mentioned that there's some issues with downloading to ES five. I was curious what's what's going on there and like that's kind of playing out.
3: So I think the Create React App was a special case, and I. They may have fixed it in a newer update, but if you uh, told the Babel config in that case, like what browsers you want to support were older browsers and you needed like downgrade ES5, it was trying to inject some Babel helpers into the actual code coming from Node modules, which was a little odd. And I, I couldn't figure out why, and I couldn't figure out what transformations it was doing in that particular case. So the solution there was like, don't downgrade to ES5 just let it do its thing to modern browsers. But that might have been fixed in a a newer update at that point because I I haven't heard people ask me about it recently. Typically, when things like that don't work with a CLI tool, whether it's like a Create Racked app or Vue CLI or anything else, I, I end up getting an email or a phone call from someone because that's kind of my wheelhouse is working with all these different tools and stuff. That was the only case we actually had that particular issue because we don't have ES5 in the API at our ESM at all. We don't have an ES5 release. So if you need a downgrade, you need to uh, pretty much do an ES- ES5 build of the entire API to get down there or let your other build tools integrate some way and do that for you. And it's not necessarily a you know, it's not necessarily an easy step. I mean, it takes a bit of configuration and stuff to do if you really need it, for example. But again, we, we do just fine right now without it which has been great. Uh, I think we've got a lot of users in general I think are moving to modern browsers. Well, typical users are working on modern browsers. When you're working with enterprise users, it's a different case. You know, They might be working with a few versions behind on uh, different browsers and stuff, whether it's Safari or Firefox or uh, Chrome if they're allowed to use it. Uh, Hopefully they're not using Legacy Edge anymore. But there's definitely a couple of those cases out there. But like I said, when we were able to drop IA level support, we actually were able to drop legacy Edge support as well. So that move to Chromium and everything for Edge was great. <laughs> it was really, really fantastic for us there.
1: Yeah, it's like when you're able to output in your NPM package the kind of highest level that you can and let other people down level, that kind of makes it a lot simpler in terms of releasing, but also gives people that
3: flexibility for, to target whatever they need to
1: for their users.
3: Like if you want to use our stuff in Node, a lot of parts of our API will work inside of a Node environment, but you've got to throw in polyfills for like fetch and the abort controller, uh, which works just fine. If you're using native modules with Node, it works great. If you're not using native modules and you just need to run it through like a something roll up or something to convert everything down and you're good to go. But other than that, yeah, it just works great. (laughs)
1: I'm curious with the node support. I've heard kind of mixed things with people using ES modules directly in node. So you're saying that that you've been able to, to do that pretty directly or have there kind of been issues with, I know there's a whole syntax for NPM to define what your kind of public exports are. Do you kind of have some things to
3: prevent people from accessing private files? we don't have anything to prevent them from accessing private files necessarily if they really wanted to, right? So things that we don't dock publicly, I mean, they're still there. Anyone can get to it if they wanted to. We pretty much just relied on our typings to do it. So if you, our typings are installed directly with the uh, ArcGIS Core package when you install it. They're, they're already there, so you get all the nice IntelliSense with everything that can read all that stuff so that's kind of what we rely on but if you really need something that's not docked publicly you could use it we do have users that do that Uh, the only thing we say is that if we don't dock it publicly we can't guarantee that it won't go away or we won't change it down the road so it's kind of a use at your own risk kind of a thing which we have had to do in the past just because we do refactoring we clean stuff up we decide that maybe we don't need these certain modules they can go some that functionality can go somewhere else and stuff so we try to be as good about that as we possibly can. But again, uh, you no, know, we can't really control what people are gonna do once they use stuff. But in terms of the, uh, using it in Node, I think I mean, the only thing you need to do is use the MJS extension. And there is some stuff that might trip you up if you're doing that like, kind of a mixed uh, use of common JS and native modules. And some of the packages may not have like a type module on them or your project might not have type module. I think that could cause certain issues there. But in most cases, we've uh, been okay using our stuff to have a node environment.
1: So do you have any tips for people who are looking to move to ES modules in terms of what they ship in their packages?
3: I, mean, I guess most tips I could say is that uh, avoid all the polyfills. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Just go with directly everything all native with your ESM packages. Make sure you, uh, if you don't need export default, don't use export default. Uh, I think that's like the, the main thing I would, I would recommend there. don't think anything wrong with export default. Maybe if you have like functions that are the only thing that that module does, then it's great to export default from there. But like if you have a utility library that you're providing, then you don't really need it. Just uh, let the tools take care of everything after the fact, right? And I think that's like the main pain point probably anyone that's going to release a package as pure ESM is going to see is that there's going to be pain points in terms of, what the tools might do, what some of the CLIs might end up doing, uh, some frameworks do some some things that are unexpected at times in terms of when they build. There's also this new tooling coming out for build tools that are like streaming, right? They'll stream your modules from like a CDN or something like that and try and do a build from there, which I haven't really had uh, tried yet. Our stuff worked with it. I think I tried. Was it WMR? Might be one. Our API did work with it up until we hit the WebAssembly stuff, and then it couldn't do the WebAssembly bits. So I think that kind of bit us there. But I'm sure there's a way for us to fix that and make it work down the road. But I think a lot of users are going to end up in those kind of situations where this is all still fairly fresh and growing right now with everyone moving to ESM. So I'm sure all these pain points will be figured out at some point down the road.
1: Yeah, it's great to see you guys pushing forward and releasing that and, and working to get that easier module format for users. And so glad to see you guys working forward on that. If someone wants to find out more about ArcGIS, uh, where can they find information on that?
3: So you can go to uh, developers.arcgis.com slash JavaScript. The shortcut for that would be js.arcgis.com. It'll take you right there. That'll take you to our documentation for API. The developers.arcgis.com will just give you a whole overall of the platform itself, all our different offerings, all our different APIs, because we also have things like Python, native runtime APIs, a full REST API you can work with, and a bunch of other tooling things you could do too. But JavaScript's the best one, of course.
1: Of course. <laughs> all right, Renee, well, thanks for joining us. Where can people find you online? What's your Twitter handle and, and YouTube and website?
3: So my Twitter handle is uh, Odonet, O-D-O-E-Net. My website's odue.net, and I stream live at odoe.live, which is basically my Twitch. And, uh, yeah, I, I put up content all the time. I write blogs for the Esri blogs as well. You can find stuff on there. So, yeah, I'm all over the place.
0: What do you uh, stream? I'm curious.
3: I try to stream like two, three times a week and I'll stream stuff on the JavaScript API, working with it. And I also try and do once a week on doing something with Dojo as well.
0: That's really cool. Have you tried out the Dojo 8 Alpha yet?
3: I've tried the Dojo 8 Alpha out for my blog. So my my blog, odo.net is built on Dojo. And I needed some, I have so many blog posts that like Vercel build tools would crash because it was too much to compile. So I needed the new caching stuff for build tooling that Dojo has. And luckily, uh, Ant showed me that and how it works. So I was able to do that. And that was was critical for me to get my blog up. So that was really fun. That's great.
1: All right. So uh, to our listeners, tweet us your comments and suggestions to at TalkScript on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And especially if you have any TypeScript tips that you uh, want us to shout out. Also check out us on Spotify now or wherever you get your podcasts. Renee, thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing all that what Ezri's doing with ES modules and your TypeScript migration. It was great to hear about that. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. I really awesome. love it. Awesome, yeah. All right. Until next time, uh, stay type safe.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of TalkScript. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us and Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter. We record new episodes every month. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript. We hope you'll call back next time.
3: we got a good thing going on. Bye, bye, bye.